Trigger warning, this podcast contains a brief discussion about suicide and suicidality, which some listeners may find distressing or upsetting. So please listen with caution. Just checking in podcast. This podcast, as always, is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. I'm your host, as always, Freddie Cocker. Each pod, I check in with a very special guest. We have a natter and chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. Having had a male perspective on involuntary childlessness from the amazing Dr. Robin Hadley, I wanted to get a female perspective on this deeply stigmatised and complex issue. So in today's episode, I'm checking in with a woman called Patricia Falks. Trish is the founder of the platform Just Me and Lily, where she talks openly about what it's like to live without children when it wasn't her choice and the stigma that people her age, younger or older, face when they don't have children or grandchildren. In this episode, we talk about her journey, her marriage at the early age of 21, the moment where her and her former partner found out she couldn't conceive and the trauma that brought and navigating life as a woman with that reality. We also discuss the lack of compassion or understanding some people have towards her in social situations, parties, daily life, when she tells them she doesn't have children or doesn't tell them she has grandchildren and the self-induced isolation that can sometimes cause from having to deliver that bad news all the time, and it can be incredibly exhausting. We also discuss the joy she's had from starting her Just Me and Lily platform and connecting with a community of people like her who have gone through what she's gone through. We also talk about her dog Lily as well. In the final part of the pod, we talk about the positivity and happiness that dog Lily brings to her life. Before Lily, Trish had another dog who died, and she says this was the closest she's ever come to taking her own life. Such was the grief and trauma that the dog's passing brought upon her. And we also discuss the similarities between having that dog and perhaps the grief associated with a child that people without children can have. So this is how my conversation with Trish went. Trish, welcome to the Just Checking In pod. Thank you so much for coming on to share your I'm sure the listeners will find it an incredible journey with me. It's been a sort of whirlwind pod romance in the short turnaround we've had because I think I contacted you at the start of this week at time of recording and and we're doing the pod this weekend. So I'm very grateful to you for making the time to come on. How are you? How is the uh, summer in Lincolnshire? Well, I mean, I'm fine, Fred. Thank you very much. Things have taken off incredibly because of the blog and the social media, etc., which we'll perhaps have a quick word about. But, you know, it's gone from naught to 100 in the space of six weeks, really. But I'm OK. I'm fine. I'm good with it. And the summer in Lincolnshire is gorgeous. Big plug for Lincolnshire there. Summer in Lincolnshire is glorious. Amazing. You've had such an incredible life, Trish, and it's winded down some really dark roads at times, but also some really joyous ones. So without further ado, let's start the show. Let's dive straight in and talk about your journey, Trish. So can you take me back a while if you can, but hopefully not too far back, and tell me about your early life, maybe your teenagers. And looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you had? Who's the Trish we meet here? 
Well, the Trish we meet, if we go back to sort of early teens, shall we say, and maybe just a wee bit before that, I don't think, certainly in those years, you would realise that you'd maybe got a problem that was mentally related, but you knew that things weren't right and they weren't right for me. I was an only child and it was very lonely. It was very lonely in those years. You know, I had friends and in those years you were able to play outside and play in the fields and so on. So that helps. But at the end of the day, they played with their brothers and sisters and their siblings. It just felt lonely. I got used to being lonely and alone, I think, from an early age. And then when it came into teenage years, because my parents, they never spoke about anything. I don't the only parents who didn't speak about anything in those times, but they just didn't speak. Nothing was spoken about. Nothing at all. Nothing. And so you're left with your own head, really. I was thinking last night, I just remembered this particular occasion, and I'd be about 13 or 14, and my parents had a caravan that they towed. And for some reason, we'd gone away to Billericay in Essex. It's the only time I've been to Essex, but anyway, it was Billericay in Essex, and we planted the caravan in this field, and it was pouring with rain. I remember that. And... My mum and dad, I mean, they were great parents, so I'm not going to say anything against them in that sense, but they decided they wanted to go for a night out just on their own. And they said, well, you'll be okay. They'd never done this before. You'll be fine. You know, we'll lock the door. You're here with the dog. We'll only be about an hour, which they were. It was dark. We had the little Calagas lights. I was in a bad place anyway. I can remember lying on that little bed in that caravan bawling my eyes out because I was so unhappy. I think that's the first time and the nearest I got at that point in my life to feeling, I don't want to go on. There's nothing to go on for. I've got nothing in my life to go on for. And I wanted to make my parents happy because all the while I'm wanting to please. So when they came back after about an hour or so, I remember saying to them, I've had a think. I'm going to join the local drama club. I mean, I didn't, but that made them pleased. I thought, oh, great, she's doing something. I didn't do anything. But at no time did I say to them, or was I able to say to them or anybody, I feel really, really unhappy. And that's the first point at which I can remember being aware of not being right, somewhere inside not being right. And I think the whole of my teenage years were very unhappy, actually. They were very unhappy because I'm guessing this is the same now. The same sort of thing happens where you're comparing yourself to other friends. So you're comparing yourself and they've got a boyfriend I've not. My parents, they never, ever complimented me. So they never said, oh, you look great. You look fantastic. Never mm. got that. In fact, I remember my dad saying to me, well, your backside looks a bit big in that, but I should think it'll be all right. I mean, that's the worst thing you can say to a teenager. And I was tall, so I felt too tall. My hair was dead straight, and everybody else's was lovely and curly and wavy. So I just felt different. I felt misplaced. I didn't know how to behave. I was painfully shy. It was pretty awful years. It shouldn't have been. It should not have been, because growing up as a teenager in the the centre of Leicester City was actually fantastic. Everything was going on. And we went to lots of clubs. But if you didn't get asked to dance, you stood there at the side of the dance floor on your own, you know. And it all kind of built up and built up to make me an incredibly insecure person for many, many years. And that insecurity is a mental health issue in itself, I think, 
and particularly when you're young, nobody was talking to me. I sometimes think there must have been relatives or aunties or somebody, my gran, out there, surely, who must have thought, oh, if she needs a word, nobody, nobody at all. So I, I can't look back on my teenage years and say they were absolutely fantastic. In parts, they were. But for a lot of it, inside my head, and that's what you're asking about, I was very unhappy. You also went to a, a single sex school at that time, which having been to one myself, albeit only for sixth form, I saw a lot of the benefits, especially around academia, because I came from a very anti-intellectual secondary school. But you had some difficulties with this experience too. Can you explain the experience that you had at that school and how it shaped your teenage years? The sex school was the grammar school. I don't think you ever thought about it because it was, it was just automatic. It was all, you know, it was either boys' school or girls' school. Because I hadn't got any brothers or sisters, and my dad was working so much of the time, he was very distant anyway. I mean, he really didn't talk about anything. I had no experience of boys, no experience at all. I had no idea how to talk to them, not a clue. So if I was out, we were out, say, and somebody did actually come up and ask me to dance, I never opened my mouth. didn't know how to react to boys and so on. And then I think if you're not careful, it didn't particularly happen to me, but I think in those situations you could be taken advantage of. You could easily be taken advantage of because you're incredibly naive at that mm. point. Incredibly naive. Because nobody spoke about sex. Nobody spoke about anything to do with anything. You learnt it yourself. I do think that was more. I mean, I'm not saying it wasn't the other people, but they seemed to know things and they told me. It was my friends that told me about periods and even sex, really, because I know nothing of these things. I mean, that's pretty poor mm. in this day and age that you grow up like that. Same sex, if you're asking me what I think of same sex schools, I think they're quite unhealthy. I think, I think mixed schools, it's a far healthier environment for young people to be in a mixed mm. sex school. I don't think it's particularly healthy. That's just my opinion. It wasn't particularly healthy for me. Outwardly, you are this resilient and mentally strong person. Because of the issues that you've gone through, we'll sort of get to them in a bit, some people automatically assume it's been easy for you or maybe that you've dealt with it easily. Does that annoy you or even trigger you? Yes, it does annoy me. Many, many times going back for quite a way. I think it's because I keep everything inside, because I've kept everything inside. Not having a choice, but you either go under or you get on with it, really. That was being how I've been. I'm not saying everybody is, but I'm not saying it's right. So people then, I've had, if I can say this, oh, you always fall in the shit and come up smelling a rose, you do. And that's been said so many times. You the can swear, time, by the way, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> You always fall in the shit up smelling a rose. And the first time it was said, I just, I said, what? And I remember saying, I've had a hard life. I don't know. I suppose you say, did it make you angry? It made me angry in as much that people would think that. What am I doing that people think I've had an easy life? And I wanted to go out and tell people I've had a hard life. It's been really difficult, actually, for me, because it, it's been, a, it, you know, it's not been easy. These things chip away at you. These little things chip away at you. You're not realising this at the time, especially when you're young. You're not realising. You've had no experience. Nobody's spoken about mental health or anything. You've had no experience of it, but they are chipping away. And I think what they were making me was somebody who became almost numb, really. Numb. 
to things because that's the way to deal with it. Just don't feel anything. Just close off and don't feel it. I mean, in some ways now, I go the opposite and I talk about stuff as I want to talk about stuff, which is much healthier. But mm. then my age, nobody really wants to listen because they've gone closed off again. This is why it becomes quite a lonely existence if you're not careful. And it's been a lonely existence. I want to talk about your marriage because you got married to your first husband fairly young by today's standards, or very young by today's standards, Trish, when you were 21, and then you moved to Skegness where you bought a hotel. You then tried to conceive with your husband, but tragically that did not go the way you wanted, even at quite a highly fertile age. If you could, can you just tell me about this journey and how it affected your mental health? Well, I suppose that's the really first really big thing was that we desperately wanted children. You know, we did. And just expect it to happen, because you do. You expect it to automatically happen, and it wasn't happening. So I went to the GPs, and nobody was particularly interested. But, you know, with, with a bit of pushing, you know, they have to do something. We ended up... I was the one who had all the tests, really. And we ended up at a major hospital in the Midlands. And after various tests, and I was put on all sorts of fertility drugs, which I suspect they still use now, um, nothing worked. And so we were kind of thrown out of the hospital and told that, you know, it's not going to happen. You keep trying, it might do, you know, we'll give you these tablets and, you know, it may work, but really there's no more we can do. And we weren't a couple who said a lot to each other anyway. I mean, we weren't very open either. And he just closed off really from it. You know, he didn't want to talk about it. We were both upset, but he didn't want to talk about it. And that impacted massively on our marriage. The fact we couldn't have children. No counselling was offered. I mean, nothing mm. was actually offered. Nothing. We sort of fought for adoption or tried to go for adoption. The first route to adoption was turned down. We were just turned down. We didn't have as much money. We were okay, but we didn't have as much money as somebody else in the village who did manage to get adoption. That was it. All options were now closed. So mm. get used to it. And of course mm. it Oh, I'm sorry. That's all right. We'll leave that in. <laughs> As you've gotten older, Trish, do you ever think about the children that you might have had, what they'd look like, how many you would have wanted to have, what their personalities would be? Or is that too painful to dwell on and you try and sort of move on with your life? I, I haven't thought that until, strangely, the past six months or so. And I think I've just become more aware of it because I'm older. And everything feels like it's, it's too late now, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, there's no grandkids, there's no kids. And it, yes, it feels very, very sad. It feels very sad. I wouldn't say I've got depressed over it. It's just made me feel there's this different thing, there's this feeling of being different all the time, alone and apart. And how that affects me mentally, I don't realise at the time, but it affects me mentally because it affects me I wouldn't say depressed. I don't think it's depressed. It's a feeling of hopelessness in a way. What's the point? Just do it. Carry on because there's nobody there anyway. So what's the point really? Just carry on. I mean, sometimes at night I have felt slightly depressed, but I just assume that everybody feels that, not just me. You know, it's feeling sorry for myself. And then I think I've got a right to feel sorry for myself. Why shouldn't I feel sorry for myself? You know, I haven't got what so many other people have got. And it's not been acknowledged. That hasn't been acknowledged either. 
that, you know, she's on her own, she has no kids, she has no grandkids. I wonder what it's like for her. Nobody acknowledges it, and I know we're going to come to that probably, but nobody talks about it, nobody wants to know. And it's everything then is bottled up. And to ask me if I, I thought about what children would look like, yeah, on a fairly regular basis, you know, it drifts into my mind. I don't know about what they'd look like, what sort of kids would we have had? What would they have been like? Would they have been, you know, really studious? Would they have been a bit stupidly arty and, and just go from one job to another? You know, who knows? I don't know what they would have been like, but I suspect they'd have looked probably more like me. Probably looked quite a lot like me. But presumably I would have had grandkids. So that would have been lovely. But it's just not happened. And how do you deal with it other than accepting it? and getting on with it. Because I've never really spoken to anybody about it properly because nobody's ever asked. Mm. I want to talk about life without children now, Trish, and how you've navigated it. Because I want to read out a quote from your blog to start this section. You say, the room called childlessness has many doors, not just the ones marked didn't want or couldn't have, in inverted commas. Can you tell me how that plays into the conversations you end up having with people when they maybe ask you about children and how some of those quite hurtful comments you can get sometimes, as we spoke about off-air, can affect your mental health? I don't very often get asked. Sometimes I think maybe I bring a conversation up. But the last time it was mentioned, it was a certain sort of group of people. And it was mentioned as a sort of, didn't you want children then? Um, well, yes, we did, actually. We just couldn't. And this was a couple of people. Oh, you couldn't have them. And I thought, why are you sounding relieved? What do you think the reason was? Why she's not got kids? Honestly, I think they are suspicious sometimes. There's a reason. It's not because you can't have them. There's some underlying reason. Anyway, you know, and this is why I wanted to sort of say not having children. There are all sorts of reasons why people don't have children. In our case, it was because we couldn't have. And when it says open many doors, that was one of them. But I just like it to be an open subject. You know, if people want it to be open, then let it be open, talk about it. Because it's becoming of a prevalent issue in society that people are aging without children. So mm. it needs to be talked about and the question needs to be asked. One of the main realities of social care, and many people would argue social care is in at least some form of crisis right now, is that for older people, the bulk of social care is largely done by their children. And yeah. as someone who doesn't have children, does that potentially scare you as you get older or does you know not yes. having that support network make you more resilient to look after your physical health and mental health it's made me resilient i don't know how resilient i am at the moment i feel more resilient since i started the social media stuff because i feel there's people out there you know i don't know them and i haven't met them but it just feels as if there's people out there discovered anyway as i've got older friends become less so many have moved away to be near the grandkids, so I've lost them. I just feel different, because they talk about grandkids all the time anyway, and I can't do that. So it's quite refreshing for us to have our little group, our little social group, because there are others there who don't have kids. Some have made that choice. You know, I didn't. It is scary. It is scary now. Now, it scared me last year. It scared me very much last year. It really scared me last year, because I realised the reality of it, of being and ageing, and it is ageing, yeah, without children and having nobody, 
and having no siblings because I've got no siblings. There is nobody there. And you know, when you want the slightest thing, the tiniest thing, my mum just used to phone me. And you phone your son, your daughter, your grandkids, if they're grown up. You phone them for advice, and I haven't got that. It's a massive thing. Don't realise that's a massive thing. When you get older, you have nobody there to ask advice of. There's nobody there. And it's easy for people who've got kids to say, oh, well, there's all sorts of organisations. Some organisations, they're not always readily available. Um, they don't always have the answer. And they don't know you. They don't know you. You know, you're just one of many, really. You want somebody close to you who you can just phone up when you need to. And as you get older, that doesn't, that seems to disappear. I found that, that seems to disappear. And you're left ageing without children. You're on your own. Which is why finding this group has been great. If you've made a decision for whatever reason you don't have children, it may seem an urge to start thinking about it, but just consider what things there are to prepare for, which is wills, power of attorney, animals, if you like animals, you're going to have an animal. It's a huge thing. What's going to happen to it? You go in hospital, you die. What's going to happen to it? You know, you have to consider that sort of issue. Who's going to come and look after your house? Who's going to turn the electric off? Oh, things that your family would sort out for you, you're going to have to do on your own, or you're going to have to think of somebody that you can really... And nine times out of ten, it ends up being your lawyer. You wrote a blog, Trish, called Next of Kin, yes. which relates to the conversation we're having right now. And it was about a conversation you were forced to have with someone about it. Now, most people would find mm. a conversation like that quite natural, maybe quite normal, but... For you, you found it quite emotionally exhausting, if I'm right in saying. Can you tell the listeners why that was? Well, it was the things, actually. And it turned out to be all sorts of things for somebody I was telling it to. What it was, it was, it was going for the COVID jab. I was at the big sports centre going for my second COVID jab. You know, it was brilliant. I mean, they're brilliant. They're absolutely amazing. So there I am. I've gone through various desks. I think I was at the desk before the needle desk. And two ladies, nice ladies, sitting down, didn't look up. And they were ticking name, next of kin. And I stood there and I just said, I haven't got any. And there's this pause. I haven't got any. I haven't got any family. Oh, well, right. And it's sort of, what do we do? Nobody. I haven't got any family, no. I was quite calm. And she said, it'll be all right, love. You'll be fine. And just sort of me on. And I thought, well, it won't be. I'm sure you are supposed to have somebody. If something went wrong with my jab, you know, it didn't. But they just didn't know what to say. And immediately I thought, that would be a tale to tell. So I told them at our AWOT group. And one of the TED workers, she's in her early 50s, she got quite emotional about it. She just felt really emotional about this. I had to stand there and say, well, I haven't got any. She thought that was awful. It felt completely matter-of-fact to me till I got back to the car and I thought, I said, you know, that was quite big and yet they reacted as if I was. And somebody else said, well, you could have said a friend. I thought, well, all the friends I have seem to have their own grandkids and their own stuff going on. I always feel as if I don't want to impose. That's another thing. I never want to impose on anybody. You don't impose on your family. They just expect to do it. But you kind of impose on friends. So you say, no, I haven't got any family. I haven't got any next of kin. It's quite sad, isn't it? 
you know, mm. it, it's quite sad. It, it was sadder to them than it was for me because I'm used to it. So it's quite a story. You know, people can make of it whatever they want. Well, you, I'd have a friend. Yes, you would. But I didn't feel I wanted to. I wanted it. To, if it was going to be anybody, it was going to be next of kin. And I don't have any. On reflection, it's quite sad is that they were because they didn't know what on earth to say. So they can't have been presented with that before because they didn't know what to say. And I'm not sure that it'll be all right, love, don't worry, carry on, was the right answer. <laughs> I think there perhaps should have been a next of kin, but it didn't matter as it happened. It, it just struck me, that was all. That sums up my situation, that right there, I thought. There you are, that's it. Over at the COVID, naturally, and next of kin, I haven't got any. And they were flummoxed, didn't know what to do. So there we are. What would you have said, Fred? It's a difficult it's a difficult one. It's a difficult one, Trish. I would have probably tried to explore all options. I would have probably asked you if you had any friends that you could list down. But it probably would have flummoxed me, to be honest. Because until I spoke to you, Trish, and obviously I spoke to Robin, who's a great man, and he's talked about being involuntarily childless. But it's a topic which is so stigmatised. And I guess stigmatising those daily social interactions that it would, I guess floor you pretty hard if you heard it so I would try and be as empathetic and kind as possible I don't think I would have maybe said to you any sort of meaningless platitudes because I think I would have felt too I guess bad for saying that but I, I, yeah. I struggle to I struggle to come up with kind of words or things that could soothe you or help you feel better yes. on the spot for sure but can you see though then how to respond to somebody who just says matter-of-factly, I don't have children, I don't have anybody. It's other people who kind of make it worse than it is. Yeah. They do not know how to, how to react and how to respond. This does exist. You know, we're not some sort of subhuman species. We are human. Do please let us in. And being at work and so on, it was, it was, it was never a problem because social life and working, it was okay. Didn't have time to think about it. Now, as I've got older... And, you know, I've been on my own for a lot, quite a long time. It's become an issue. I want to move on to grief, if we can, because you and your first husband amicably separated in 1993 when you were in your mid-40s, Trish, and then you became the yes. manager of an estate agency. You also told me you were always someone who was called a perfectionist. Now, did you enjoy that label? Was it a conscious thing? And going deeper, do you mm. think you did it in some way to distract from the trauma of being involuntarily childless or was it from your experience as an only child? That's a good point and one I hadn't thought of. I am a perfectionist in that I strive for perfection and it is annoying for other people and I do that because I, I just have to please. It's this need to please and to be the best and to crave attention, affection, praise, I call it what you will but you know that's that's what it is but does it annoy me yeah, I guess it does annoy me. It's like being found out. Mm. You know, it's like somebody saying you're a perfectionist. It's like somebody saying, I know why you're doing it. Because, you know, you're insecure. Underneath it all, you're insecure. And you're insecure because you've not been made to feel secure going back. And I'm sorry, mum and dad, but from parenting, really. I just never made and given any real love and warmth in that sense to make me feel really secure and loved. 
So I've grown up feeling that second best will do for me, but when I'm working and when I'm doing something, only the best will have to do. Whatever I'm doing, it'll have to be absolutely perfect. And it's not, of course, but has it affected me with regard to mental health? It's probably a mental health issue, if you want to call it. Making your mental health healthy, I'm not sure that's healthy. To strive to be good and the best you can be is probably good. But to strive always to be the absolute best and to be a perfectionist all the time in anything, whatever it is, you know, if there's a painting competition, mine's got to be the best. Why isn't it? And it matters. And it shouldn't. But it does. It's going a long way back. And it's issues that have never been dealt with because nobody's ever asked me. Counselling and so on has not really ever been offered when perhaps it should have been. And I know that'll be something we'll come on to perhaps. But I said to you, I just say this bit. I said to you at the beginning when you first contacted me that, well, I don't know if I have any mental health issues, Fred. And you said, everybody's got mental health, Trish. It's like physical health. And I thought, oh, yeah, of course. And then I thought, well, it's kind of like taking that mental health and putting it in a drawer or something up here, locking it away then. And it's like locking that mental health bit and locking it away and keeping it locked away and not even addressing it or looking after it. Because I don't think I have. I think I've just kept it locked away. Instead of bringing it out and having a look and seeing how healthy it is, which I've probably been doing more of, and getting a bit scared sometimes as to perhaps, you know, the, the real state of how do I feel? You know, how do I really feel? Is it healthy? Is it healthy to keep things bottled up and not talk about things? I'm guessing it's not. So my mental health is another issue. And I suspect it probably needs a lot of polishing up by talking stuff through. But what sort of help you get on that one is another issue. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Definitely a different issue, Trish, for sure. I want to talk about your second partner, Trish, because you got together with him and then you stayed with him for around 17 to 18 years before he passed away in 2012. Now, one part of grief that isn't spoken about is perhaps negative emotions around grief. So one thing that you found was resentment. And you said you felt hurt that he left you on your own. Can you just unpack that for me and maybe the stigma around that emotion too? Yes, I think it involves both my mum and him, really. Because I, I mean, obviously I was a lot younger than my mum. I was quite a lot younger than my late partner. And in my head, I think, well, they really had the best of me. You know, I did a fair bit of certainly looking after and not particularly always having my life. It was, you know, according to often what they wanted, especially my mum. And they then died and left me on my own, which sounds quite a selfish thing for me to say as I hear myself saying it. But it is how I feel. I have felt, very much felt feel this resentment that you're left here on your own. And they've kind of done all right out of you, really. It's not that they've not tried to look after you, but it's the emotional side of things is that you're left on your own at a difficult age. Because when you're older and left on your own, it's not as easy as finding somebody else or whatever it is when you're younger. Yes, I do feel that they had the best of me. That's, that's the term that just comes into my head. It's, it just sort of sits there in my head. They had the best of me and then, it sounds awful to say, and then buggered off and left me on my own. <sighs> they died, sorry. But, you know, it's, 
I'm going to die and nobody's going to know about it. That's how I feel. Who's going to know? Nobody's going to know my dog. Um, it's having to come to terms with so many things. I know that's life, but it didn't have to be this way. That's all. And I think it may come down again to that upbringing of trying to please, all the while trying to please and not pleasing myself, pleasing other people. This is what happens if it's not dealt with. This is what happens if it's not dealt with. You end up like this, getting resentments, sort of a certain bitterness and hidden resentments that now come to fore. I do need to probably talk about, I guess I do need to talk about, but here's the thing. When you get so much older, you think to yourself, well, what's the point in talking about it now? It's not going to matter. Now, somebody can maybe answer that one, but that's kind of how I feel. Whether I should talk to somebody, whether I should address it via counselling, the various resentments that I feel, something else says, but you're too old. What's the point? Now, is that a common thing? Is that just me? I don't know. Because all you hear is young folk, remember. We hear, quite rightly, younger people talking about their mental health and how healthy their mental health is and and maybe unhealthy, and great that they are doing, but there are older people as well. What happens to us? Because I'm not sure we dare talk about our mental health. We have to really be pushed to talk about it because we all think we're great, and I don't think we are. I think many of us have got lots of issues, but we won't care. We won't bother about it. But look at me. None of my peers of my sort of age really wanting to talk about it unless they're childless themselves. Now, how, how mm. is that right? Can I just reflect um, on your journey now, Trish, at the end mm. of this topic? So given all you've been through, what has it taught you about yourself? And if you could go back and speak to that 21-year-old Trish who just got married or the 22-year-old Trish who was told she couldn't conceive or maybe the Trish in her mid-40s who had just lost her partner, what would you say to her knowing what you do now? I suppose I would say, look at yourself. Are you happy? Are you really happy? Are you really happy? Go and talk to somebody. All this talk about talking, it's not wrong. Talk to somebody, please, because you're not happy. Face the fact that you're not happy. You know, you're not happy through your teenage years. You're not happy through those early marriage years, neither of us were. And nobody talked about it. Nobody said anything. Talk, please go and talk to somebody. And it has to be somebody professional. It has to be somebody professional. So I can say that now. Now, could I have said that then? I don't know. But that is what was needed for me. It really was for me to talk to somebody and have somebody encourage me to talk about the things that I'd experienced, the feelings that I'd experienced. The, clearly the depressions that I'd experienced and not known, not realised. But that's the only thing I would want to say. Because I was closing everything down. I was shutting everything away. I was ignoring things. That's not right. And the only way to deal with that is to get it out and talk. I couldn't talk to my parents. My ex-hubby and I didn't have that sort of ability to talk to each other on that level. We really didn't. And so who else is it to talk about but... A professional so that's all I can say is talk go and talk to somebody that would be to the younger me that would have been difficult I would have had to have said go and talk 
with the hindsight and knowledge that I have now, go and talk to your team, who in those years would have been probably very empathetic and understanding. I think we have issues and we do need to talk. They do need to talk. That was my advice to me. That would be my advice to anybody. I think it would have saved me a lot of anguish further on down the line. Despite what you've been through, Trish, you wanted to mm. share your experience with others and now you've created this platform, Just Me and Lily. Obviously, you've spoken about it a little bit, about why you wanted to maybe write about it or maybe feel inspired to. So let's talk about one of the key things you write about on the platform, which is perception. Can you tell me about your perspective on perception when it comes to the platform and then some of the intricacies and nuances which people might not realise? My perception of social media or my perception, is that what you mean? Your, the perception of others that ha they have for you. Oh, well, you know, we've covered that in one small part in that I'm okay, I've, I fall in, come up smelling of roses. It's all right, she's strong, she doesn't matter. Nobody has asked me all through COVID if I'm all right because the perception of me is that I'm strong, I can cope. I don't perhaps look like a stereotypical little old woman. Not that perhaps, I'm not saying everybody does, but... You know, I don't. I'm quite tallish and reasonably stylish, I think. Perhaps they think, well, you know, she, she's fine. She is. Nothing wrong with her. She looks absolutely fine. If I walked along like a little tiny old lady, they'd be worrying. They'd be, you know, concerned. But I don't. So I walk around as if I'm absolutely fine. And there were certainly times last year, certainly I really wasn't fine. Just felt as if there was nobody to talk to. I mean, I ended up phoning Age UK. I think is that also that I'm perhaps unapproachable. I can't think that they'd say I'm not friendly, but I'm unapproachable, perhaps. Because nobody, nobody said, are you all right? You're on your own. Are you OK? Nobody. And that's pretty poor in a so-called community. But that's because their perception of me is, oh, she'll be fine. And, and the other thing is, of course, that people don't want to get involved. They really don't want to get involved for another thing. So they would know I'm on my own and they don't want to get involved in maybe having to look after me which they never have to do that but it would have been nice to have just known there was somebody there who was bothered but no because their perception is she won't need our help she's absolutely fine whether that was a perception or whether that's what they told themselves because it was what they wanted to hear themselves that I'm fine that way we don't have to ask her if she's all right she looks fine she doesn't have children. Well, you know, we slightly covered that one as to what the reasons are. They make up their own stories and they make up their own stories. They do until I was asked and then told that I couldn't have them. Then they knew. I feel as if I'm wiped out of, like I'm wiped out of society. I'm on my own. I don't have anybody. So I must be odd. That's the mm. other thing. I think I must, she must be a bit odd then. You know, well, I had a business. Mm, yeah did you yes I did actually have a business yes oh right well you know she's on her own she's always walking the dog on her own she must be a bit odd I don't believe I am odd I don't know if I'm odd or not but I don't think I'm odd but that's another perception that people have I think people not I mean I'm saying people generally it is a perception that if you're on your own you don't have children you're completely on your own you walk the dog because that's how I like to do it then you're probably a bit odd because I've had this you're all right love you know in a sort of condescending patronizing way 
which is slightly difficult to answer. Yes, I'm fine. And that's the other thing that you do. Even if you should you ever be asked, you're right, Lal. And you'll go, yeah, I'm absolutely fine. Even when you're absolutely not, you do say that. I'm fine. I'm fine. Because what do you say? There were many times I wasn't, I absolutely wasn't fine. But I don't know, how does one say to somebody, no, I'm really not fine. I, I maybe need help here. I don't know how you say that. Because you mm. know that they're thinking you are fine. But they wouldn't know what to do. If I said, no, I'm really not fine. They wouldn't know what to do. I feel a bit sorry for them in a way that they would be put in that position. So the easiest thing is to just ignore me. <laughs> put me in the drawer of probably non-human because we can be seen as non-human, not actively, but subconsciously. I think sometimes by some people, when you're on your own, as I am, without children and getting older, that's not very mm. nice. No, not at all. We spoke earlier, Trish, about the language that people should use or could use when you know people in your position disclose to other people about you not being able to conceive children. So what are the right things to say then? Maybe we can sort of help educate the listeners. Well, in a group of people, and they're all talking about grandkids, and I clearly aren't joining in, then just face it head on, I think. If somebody says to me, do you have children? No, I don't have children. Then just say, oh, does that bother you? Are you, are you all right with that? You know, are you okay with that? You can talk about it to me if you want to, but not if you don't want to. I think it's got it's sort of open question. It's not easy for people. They don't always understand. They don't know what to say. But I don't know how it's that difficult. I'd sooner somebody actually be blunt. I'd rather somebody say to me, oh, haven't you? Why is that then? I'd rather that than say nothing and just ignore it as if it's something that should be shoved under the carpet. Mm. So say whatever taboo, you like. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What you like as long as you address it and face the thing you've spoken a little bit about social media already trish but can you just talk about maybe some of the reaction that you've had to the articles maybe through written private messages or even face to face and how has that helped you bring joy or connection in this regard well my blog is live but it's it's sort of teetering quietly at the moment because i'm going to be honest i'm still waiting for the lawyer to put the gdpr on there and I'm a bit nervous about going too live without that on. But many people have read through it, who I know, who've read through it. And they've said, well, it's very personal. I like the fact that it's very personal. It's not just a generalised sort of conversation about ageing without children. It's your story. So I like that. I like that feedback. I would like to sharpen it up a little bit with other articles. But, you know, it started from that COVID time, that time last year, um, from there, I also realised with the blog, I'm told you're going to have to get across social media, which terrified me. And I love it. I love it. I love so far. I love social media. I've only found people to be very supportive. You know, I've heard about the horrible side of social media and Twitter. Touch wood, I haven't come across it yet. You know, <laughs> yet. Of, Prepare oh, yourself, now, though. <laughs> now I will. You can't help it. You start to get a little bit addicted to the fact. I just. How many likes are? Oh, I've got another two likes. Be what careful, Trish. Doing? Don't want to get Who sucked I? in. <laughs> What's happening? And then Instagram. Well, that's not me at all. But they like it. Already I've realised what people like. And I've got into it a little bit. I'm going to say it. Facebook defeats me. But there we are. 
all I can say is I haven't been this busy since I started to set up my own business. It's taking up so much of my time. <laughs> I don't know if it's supposed to, but it is. It's really taking up my time. But I like it. It is. It's, as I say, it's like going from naught to 100 at the speed of light, really. Before we talk about Lily, I just want to mm. ask you quickly about, you know, because I've spoken to Robin and I wanted to get a female perspective. So if there are younger female listeners who are listening to this, Trish, what is the one takeaway you would want people to have from your podcast? And what would you say to those younger women who might have doubts about fertility or might be thinking about children, but maybe sort of deciding against it? What advice would you give them from your experience? Advice would be really explore the subject, which would perhaps be going on to sites like Aging Without Children. Childless Week, I think it's called, World Childless Week, Gateway Women, various other big sites where you can learn the impact of making the decision, say, to not have children and the support that you can get from if you can't have children. Give it thought if you're thinking about those decisions, whether to have children or not, whether to put it off till later. We explore the subject because it's, it's not now, it's in later life where you will be affected by it. Even if you're still a couple, we have couples in our social group who don't have children and they feel affected by the fact that they're growing older without grandchildren. So please object before you make an absolute finite decision on whether you're going to have them or not have them. Young women have longer nowadays, perhaps, than they did to think about it. But I wouldn't sort of leave it too late before you do your research. Do research is what I would say. Let's finish this topic, Trish, by talking about Lily, because she's part of your platform, she's part of the name. And it's clear from your writing and from speaking to your fair that she brings you so much joy. Can you talk about your relationship with her and why she helps you so much with companionship, structure to your week and your mental health? I think the mental health is, is a really strong one because, you know, we had the conversation before Lily came along. I've always had dogs. We've always had dogs and cats. And I had my little dog before Lily, who was about 14 when she died. And we'd been through so much together. Jilly, her name. We'd been through so much together, little tiny chihuahua, who was just like a support, a support system for me. We'd been through death. We'd been through all sorts of legal fights. We'd been through moving house. We'd been through so many things, some certain loneliness. She'd been there and she knew, she just knew. So ill suddenly and then had to be put to sleep suddenly honestly but I think about a week or so I remember about three days after she died and I was just going for a drive just to get out and I couldn't pulled into the car park in Horncastle here where I live and phoned my GP and the lovely receptionist answered and she asked me why I was asking for the GP she could sense I think that I was quite distressed and I knew her so I told her she said just a moment and she went straight through to my doctor. She came straight back and said, doctor has sent a prescription for some light sedatives, if you like, through to the chemist. They'll be there in half. She's ordered them to be ready in half an hour. And then she was obviously told to have a conversation with me. 
about dogs and you know how she'd felt not the doctor the receptionist who was wonderful and that little conversation really really helped and she said doctor i won't say her name has said to phone her anytime you feel that you need to talk to somebody which i thought was a really really just to know that was enough to be honest anyway that really did help but still didn't help me get over losing her and I just remember waking up one morning and just thinking I don't really want to go on I don't really want to go on there's no point in going on without her nothing's helping I don't want to go on I remember getting out of bed and forcing myself but I thought I, I can't go on like this I can't I'm gonna to have to find ways of doing myself in quite frankly honestly that's how I felt and uh, it was, a, I mean, it was a build-up, wasn't it? It was a build-up of everything because she represented everything that supported me, little dog. Later on, I had a phone call from a friend that day <laughs> and said, have you looked on Pets for Homes? No. There's a photo of a little dog on there. Anyway, long story short, I ended up booking this appointment to see this little dog, that was Lily. And that's how Lily came into my life. And Lily is a dog. But she's everything. She's everything to me. She's just everything. It terrifies me, the thought that she's a dog, so she's got a limited life. And I have to be aware of that. I don't think at my age I have another one. So she's it. She just fills my life, really. I think the just me and Lily thing, I reckon it came from her. I reckon it came from the fun that we've had, because she's very, very funny. I think it's just come from her and her antics and what we do together. Without her, I don't know if I'd be here if I hadn't got her, or a dog anyway, an animal. But as it happens, it's her. And mm. she's really been the right one and filled that gap. So thank you, that friend, for phoning that morning. I mm. think you might have saved my life. <laughs> I hope she's listening to this pod, Trish. You said you treat Lily like your child in many ways. And mm. one of my old bosses was a lovely gay man I only disclose his sexuality for the purpose of this question because when his dog died I saw just how much it hurt him and quickly learned that for some gay couples not all I should say but for some who maybe can't afford adoption or afford IVF their pets very much become their children in many ways yeah. do you share any commonalities with that oh absolutely your pet does become your child and you get scoffed. You get scoffed at for that. Usually by people with children, yes. Not lots, but you do. You do get scoffed. Oh, she's your child. I mean, it can be said with a certain sort of disdain, perhaps. Just a little bit of disdain. Lily's your child. She's like your baby. She's a dog, but she's a baby dog, a dog baby, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, I mean, I'm aware she's a dog for me to look after for us to have good times together, to go for walks. She makes me get out and go for walks because I wouldn't. I wouldn't go out and go for a walk on my own. We go some marvellous, amazing walks together and that's part of my life now. She's almost shaped my life really now. It's kind of shaped by her and what she needs and what she wants. So she's spoiled probably more than any child is <laughs> spoiled in, in many ways. I'm not going to make any apologies for that. You shouldn't either, baby. yeah. No, I mean, to say she saved me sounds incredibly dramatic, but it is true. I think she has. I think she has. 
And the other thing is, of course, people talk to you more when you've got a dog, especially one that looks like her. People talk, <laughs> they talk to you, you know, they do stop and chat and want to have a word. And, you know, that's great too. It's a form of communication, really. When mm. you're older, I'd recommend it, is what I'd say to anybody, I'd recommend it. As a final question, Trish, doing this mm. platform for the short time that you have, what have you learned about yourself and what has it given you? I've learned that something that I've always been, which is quite arrogant, and thinking that I can do this, I can do this, I can make a success of this. And although I would definitely describe myself probably as a loner and reserved, I wouldn't say I'm necessarily introvert, but I'm certainly not extrovert, but I'm having to be. If you're going to make a real success of it on a blog and, and on your social media, you're going to have to be a little bit introvert. So it's making me be more, not introvert, extrovert. It's making me be more extrovert. I don't know if that's a good thing. Sometimes it makes me think you're becoming egotistical. Stop it. You know, you're becoming egotistical. How many likes have I got? Does somebody like my blog? I'm becoming e egotistical. You're learning what the kids are that... going through, Trish. <laughs> <laughs> At my age. Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? I don't know. I mean, you, it's better than going inwards, isn't it? Mm. It's better than going inwards and, and sort of sending everything downwards into yourself it's, if you're writing about stuff it's better to get it out then isn't it one way or the other i would have said so my blog has taught me that i am as arrogant and egotistical as sometimes people have said i am i didn't think so i didn't think i was but if i am so what that's what i say <laughs> so what i still think i'm okay so there <laughs> Our final topic of conversation, Trish, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests. It is a general natter and chat about our mental health. So firstly, how would you say your mental health is at the moment? I would say my mental health probably needs work from me. It needs work by me actually bringing it out of its department up here and looking at it and nurturing it because it's shut away. It needs looking after. It needs nurturing. Can you tell yeah. me about the first conversation you had with someone about your mental health, Trish? So who was it with? What impact did it have? And how do you look back on it? Did it feel like a big moment or weight had been lifted? Or did it feel like something quite insignificant and normalised? I believe it was with your business partner when you set up a dog grooming business. Is that right? Oh, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right back in the day, after we'd sold our hotel, I bought into a dog grooming business in Skegness and with a lovely, lovely woman and ran our dog grooming business in Skeggy for many, many years. And in between appointments, we'd be having a coffee and a chat and she was very open and I'd never been open. I'd never learned, as we've said. But I remember her saying and making some reference to her relationship, our relationship, because she was quite a motherly, very warm woman. I found myself talking about the problems that me and my ex-hubby were having at the time emotional problems and I found talking to her for the first time in my life I was talking about it and then other times as days went on and weeks went on I talked about it again and I remember having this feeling of it was like a big blanket being thrown off it was just this feeling of freedom in my head talking about it it was amazing this is what it feels like and also I think that was the start. It was the start of my journey, if that's what you call it, of 
awareness, self-awareness, because a journey of self-awareness is a very long one. And I think that was the first little pinprick of a journey of self-awareness because I was talking about my emotional feelings, my problems, my emotional problems in a relationship, albeit with somebody for the first time in my life. It was amazing to be talking about it. What things in life do you find that trigger your mental health, Trish? So this could be things people say to you, could be a sound, it could be a sensation, it could be a social environment, or have you not figured all of them out yet? I think I said I ignore my mental health, I just (laughs) shove it away. But if it were what triggers a reaction, I think it's going back to the perception thing. She's okay, there's nothing wrong with her, she's fine. This non-human thing, being treated as if I'm a non-human because I'm absolutely fine, there's nothing wrong with her, she's got no illnesses, there's nothing wrong. Look at her, she looks fine. That triggers off a certain rage inside. I'll get home and have a rage within myself. You know, you, you do that thing where you do talk to yourself and you do talk to yourself, by the way. Well, who else am I going to talk to? And you have this conversation with yourself and you, I, I'm angry. I get really angry about that, really, really angry. So that triggers, it's a mental health, if you call that a mental health reaction, it's certainly a reaction. And it bothers me so much that I suppose it's something either I should deal with there and then with the person and learn how to deal with it, or I should go and talk about it. And that we'll talk about at the end, I think. But talking to somebody about it is not that easy. But internalising it, is not good. And that's really what I'm doing. I'm internal. I might be raging up and down the kitchen, but I'm internalizing it. So I've not dealt with it. But obviously, there'll be various other things. But that is one that the first thing that comes to mind is that is that I'm okay. I'm all right. She's okay. There's nothing wrong with her. There's nothing wrong mm. with her. She's fine. You know, you think, how can you think I'm fine? Just because I look fine doesn't necessarily mean inside I'm not. What tools and methods do you use in your life to improve your mental health on the other side of the spectrum, Trish? You know, which ones have you found that have worked for you? And maybe which ones that you've tried to do but haven't, maybe? The first thing I think, if it's what comes into your mind first, is nature. But it is nature. It's the first thing I can do for me is to get the dog and go straight out into green fields by the river, wherever I can. It has to be on my own, though. It has to be just me and her. I don't want anybody else around. I just walk and trying to work whatever it is out in my head. It's not a perfect medicinal or psychological method of, you know, help, but it's a good one. The other one would I'd like it to be would be to be able to talk about it, but I haven't been able to find that. Even when I've got loads and loads of friends, they talk to me, but I didn't feel that I could talk to them. I can talk to a professional, but I can't just talk to anybody. And I think that's just years of, it's just impacted in my brain. That's how it is now. I can't talk to anybody. Nobody wants to know. That's how my head thinks. So I have to go out myself and the dog in nature and basically talk to myself, talk to nature. (laughs) Nature doesn't always answer, but, you know, sometimes (laughs) there's, there's an answer there for your own self. I think you can work it out yourself. Before we talk about therapy, what has been the best book or what I would describe it as a mental health Bible you've read for your mental health? The first book I read, which is the one I'm remembering, and it's probably not an obvious one, is It Is the Road Less Travelled, M. Scott Peck, isn't it? 
It is that one, and, and his, uh, the other one that he wrote, and various mindfulness ones. And I've learnt meditation. I've learnt meditation and yoga from YouTube during COVID. I was doing it anyway, but I was doing my own version. I've now learnt it from the American sites, actually. Sorry, but it often <laughs> is. And I have found, yes, that meditation, turn whichever way you want, but sometimes if it's only for five minutes to just sit there quietly, and just empty your mind. You don't have to think anything. Just empty it and just become quieter within yourself. I know so many people say it is a terrific way of just helping in that moment. Just helping. And, of course, being self-aware and mindful. And I think that comes with age. and comes with years. You learn who you are and what you are. And you can't do that overnight. So when they say being in the moment, that's quite hard. It's quite hard to just be in the moment. But if you can be, it does work. It certainly works because everything else then just drifts away. I know it's perhaps an obvious thing to say, but that nature is the only real tools I've got and, and been offered. And mm. they work. They work. How has therapy helped you in your mental health, Trish? Have you found someone or built that trust to be able to open up in the ways that you've been describing that you needed to earlier in this pod? I've seen counsellors in the past. I have seen counsellors just to talk things through. Depends on the counsellor, Fred, really. Depends mm. on their prowess. The idea is that you do all the talking and they don't say a lot. And I find that quite difficult, believe it or not. I do find that quite difficult. I find it difficult to open up. I find it very difficult to open up. So if it was, safe through the um, NHS, which I think one or two were, it was only because I was on sleeping tablets at the time and the GP said, well, you can't have them. Do you need to talk to somebody? Oh, OK, then. Right. So and it was about six or seven weeks later before I actually got to talk to somebody. And whoever it was, I remember, was very, very good. But you only got about six sessions. It helped if you've got a very, very good counsellor, because it's going to depend totally on how good that counsellor is, how that counsellor understands you and you can put your trust in that therapist, counsellor, psychologist, whoever it is. You have to be able to trust them implicitly. And I could. I think on the NHS at the time, I'm going back a bit, it was only about six sessions. As a final question, Trish, and I ask it to all my special guests, and it's a broad one as well, so you can answer it any way you want, but what more do we have to do to ensure people from all backgrounds, all walks of life, all ages feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if they want to do it? I think we've touched or I touched on it. And I suppose it's the NHS to encourage more people to go the route of counselling therapists, psychologists. That'll do up to that point. Because apparently there's very, very short supply because they are the people who you need to talk to. You can talk to friends, but friends aren't trained. They aren't trained to talk to you. They aren't trained to tell you the, the right sort of things. You can talk to them for immediate support, immediate sympathy. But to really talk your problem through, we need to get more counsellors and therapists and psychologists on board and available on the NHS and more quickly for people too. And mainly for young people. You know, it sounds like it's mainly for young people. And also accept the fact when young people, and it's mainly young people, say they want to talk, they want to talk. Don't make it sound as if it's the latest saying, the latest thing, we want to talk. It is genuine. 
you know, from my own experience, they do want to talk. So let them talk. But if it's necessary, they may need to talk to somebody who is professional and knows how to deal with their problem properly. And so that's something that I don't think is readily available. It's not the NHS's fault, is it? But they need to be able to have access to trained counsellors and therapists, etc. Patricia Falks, thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking In podcast. Thank you very much, Fred. Thank you for asking. We have come to the end of this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I want to say a big, massive thank you to Trish for coming on and sharing her incredible story. Fertility and children are not a given in this world. And I hope this pod has made you maybe a kinder, maybe a more empathetic person if you encounter people like Trish in your life. I'll put some links to where you can follow Trish on social media in the show notes so you can find out more about her journey, read some of her blogs and see some of her great tweets about this subject. As always, I will thank all the venters who tuned in. I'll sign us off by saying, if you've liked it, give it a share on social media, tell your friends, tell your work colleagues, tell your family about it, spread the good news about Vent and all the work we're doing here on the podcast. If you're feeling generous and want to support us further, please drop us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Help us out with those precious algorithms. Or if you want to go even further, you can support our Patreon. It's at www.patreon.com slash If you want to just make a one-off donation, you can also visit our GoFundMe. That's in our link tree on all our channels. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, guys, it's always okay to vent. Vent.